HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Did you know that you can stream The French Chef with Julia Child on the PBS Documentaries Prime Video channel? See where America's obsession with cooking shows began and start your free trial today. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome winemaker Fabian Bravo. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Fabian about Santa Barbara Sauvignon Blanc, his path to becoming a winemaker. And we'll hear Fabian's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Much has been made of Julia's love of wine. And while it's not true that Julia was imbibing on TV, usually she was drinking colored water, watered-down gravy, she did develop a strong appreciation for wine in France and from her husband Paul's expertise. This led Julia to become a strong advocate for California's fledgling wine industry upon her return to the United States in the 1960s. To promote it, she helped found the American Institute for Wine and Food and later worked with Robert Mondavi to open Copia, a cultural center focused on wine and food in Napa, now managed as part of the Culinary Institute of America. By the time Julia died in 2004, the superiority of California wine was now recognized around the world. But that reputation is strongly linked to Napa Valley. Santa Barbara winemaking which dates back many decades, has now spawned seven AVAs, official viticultural areas, and is sold and admired around the world. However, it does kind of remain in the shadows of its neighbors to the north in Napa and Sonoma. 
Now, being headquartered in Santa Barbara offers the foundation the advantage of seeing firsthand the bounty produced there from land, sea, and vineyard all across the county. This underpins our support of the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience's Taste of Santa Barbara, which in 2022 featured a Taste of Santa Barbara wines at the historic El Presidio in downtown Santa Barbara. The event brought together wineries from across Santa Barbara County and included discussions with dozens of winemakers. It's here that we met Fabian Bravo, winemaker at the Brander Vineyard in Los Olivos in the San Inez Valley. After earning a degree in electrical engineering at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, working for aerospace and defense company Raytheon, and then even as a baker in his hometown of Gonzales, California, Fabian joined the Brander Vineyard in 2007. Having completed an internship at Siduri Wines, Fabian had answered an ad from Fred Brander, one of Santa Barbara's premier makers of Sauvignon Blanc. After learning on the job and working his way up, Fabian was named winemaker at Brander in 2013. The Brander Vineyard focuses on Bordeaux grape varieties and releases between six and eight different Sauvignon Blanc wines every year. Brander produces other Bordeaux varieties such as Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cabernet Franc, Sauvignon Gris, and Semillon. And in addition to his work at Brander, Fabian and his wife Megan have their own small wine label, Casita de Bravo. Fabian joins us today to share his passion for winemaking and tell us more about the merits of Santa Barbara wine. Welcome to the podcast, Fabian. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and uh, I'm I'm uh, grateful that you guys have me on. Well, we're looking forward to the conversation, so let's get into it. So I, I mentioned you were an engineer at one point, or you trained to be one, and before you got into winemaking, what made you do what, what sounds like a pretty dramatic shift in your career? It, it does sound like a pretty dramatic shift, uh, and uh, I obviously have a lot of classmates and former co-workers of engineering that uh, thought that as a big leap and jump, and hopefully inspired uh, a few friends and and colleagues to do something like that and follow their passion to do something they really enjoyed day to day and and try to do something that could be a lifetime passion. But um, yeah, we, we, I don't, no regrets. It was a a transition that, I, I think I was able to use a lot of my skill sets that has an engineer uh, in the cellar. But uh, being trained as an engineer, having uh, a lot of logistical planning, all that really helps uh, shuffle things around in the winery uh, during harvest, uh, a little bit mechanically and electrical inclined uh, to be able to fix a few pieces of equipment throughout the cellar. Uh, all that helps. And did you already love wine before you became an engineer? Or like, that's what I was curious. Yeah. Like, they seem such different paths. Like, where was the like, oh, uh, you know, engineering is probably not what I want to do. But oh, it's wine versus, I don't know, switching to accounting or anything else. Well, we living here in Santa Barbara, I learned through my roommate that you can come up to the San Inez Valley and have a uh, wine tasting experience, visit one, two, three different taste rooms. This was around 2003 and uh, 2000, yeah, late 2003. And uh, most of it then was 
free, free tastings, and then they send you home with the stemware that you use for the tasting. And I thought that was pretty cool. My roommate did that. Yeah, I remember him visiting Fest Parker Winery that you know, offer great picnic grounds. So I thought I should do the same. So I came up to uh, San Diego's Valley and experienced the same situation and liked it and uh, started doing that every other weekend. I would drive up, visit one or two wineries and drive back down to Santa Barbara. Uh, started visiting more restaurants at that time. I, I didn't grow up drinking wine. Uh, I did grow up on Chardonnay Drive in Gonzales, <laughs> California. But I didn't drink uh, wine, you know, before this. I had tried it, uh, like most people, and uh, you try to find that one that you enjoy. And uh, you're, you know, you know you're supposed to like wine. You think you're supposed to like wine, but you don't really uh, until you find sort of a, a gateway. So I, I remember working for Raytheon, and uh, I would go down to El Segundo in L.A. area by the airport, and I'd work a long day at Raytheon there, and I'd come home and uh, uh, to the hotel. And the server that worked late there, uh, the first time I ordered uh, a wine from him, it was a Pinot Noir from Cambria Winery, which is here in Santa Barbara County. And he served it to me just like you would a beer, to the rim. Uh, and surprisingly, I not only got a big dose of wine, but I also really enjoyed the wine. So after that experience, I was ordering that wine from the same server and got the same results, uh, a glass full of enjoyment. <laughs> so uh, that was another occasion where I thought like, wow, this is the first time I actually really enjoy wine. Uh, uh, it hit the spot at the end of the day. But uh Going back after visiting a few wineries here locally, uh, maybe a year or two later, I decided that I'd try to make wine at home. So, knowing, growing up in Gonzales and the Greenfields, basically the Salinas Valley, I had some high school friends that were farming grapes, and I called them up and said, Hey, I'd like to make some wine. Is there any way that you can sell me grapes from the vineyards you tend to? And uh, I had a friend said, yes, come out and you can look at what you, what you want. Uh, we can even pick it for you if you want. And of course, I, was, I wanted to do it all. So I said, no, no, I'll, I'll pick it myself. Of course, you know, a few hours later, I was regretting that. I'm like, I should just go over there and take it from the bins they already picked from. But that year I did a, uh, that was 2005 or 2006. I did a Chardonnay and a Merlot in glass carboys and the wine wasn't great it was okay but it wasn't great but uh i had my dad help me out we did it in my parents backyard my mom shared that experience with some of the customers that uh from the store that she worked for at that point she worked for a bakery there in gonzalez and uh she had met a lot of the growers of that area monterey county the san Lucia highlands so then she shared that experience with some of those farmers and they thought, you know, we'd like to meet your son uh, if there's ever a chance. Mom told me that and I said, well, I'd like to meet them too because I've been trying their wines out and I really enjoy them. That's the Franchoni family, the Pizzoni families out there. And I have to thank them a lot because eventually they said they would offer me an internship. And at that point I had moved up to 
Monterey County to Gonzales, and I was working for another defense company in Hollister. And I wasn't quite enjoying working there uh, as much as I thought. And so when harvest was approaching, I thought, like, why not? Let's, I got, you know, uh, I'm living at home right now with my parents. I don't have a lot of bills. Let's do this. Uh, I told my boss that I'd love to, like to do this, try this out, work at a winery. So I called the Franchoni family and they said, well, we, we can put you in touch with Adam Lee and Ryan Zapaltas at Siduri. And, uh, and that's how the way it worked out. I went to work there in Harvest. Uh, luckily, my former employer was really supportive. Uh, they offered me a leave of absence from my job where I was at, which was a huge uh, uh fallback plan you know I can go do this for two three months and uh and then come back to my old job so that was that was a good relief uh so I went to go work for Sudury that internship ended I met Fred Brander uh answered like you said uh Craigslist posting that was put on I met him and uh started working here thinking that I would use up the rest of my leave of absence which was three months and go back to my former employee in January but I enjoyed it so much just like I had enjoyed my internship at Siduri that uh, Fred and I had to have a conversation uh, that January 2007 sorry that would be 2008 and uh, decided to stay and even then you know I just didn't know what was going to happen didn't realize that it'd be, you know, it's about 14 and a half years now here at Brander. Um, it's been a fun ride. Met lots of people in the industry, lots of friends here. And uh, like I said earlier, no regrets. It's, it's uh, been able to use some of my skill sets from school and training and, and sort of discipline uh, into something that I would consider as creative as engineering. Uh, maybe even more because you see the immediate results as opposed to working on a circuit board or a design that you may never see the final system work out. Whereas in wine, uh, once it's in bottle, even before it's in bottle, you can share wine out of barrel. You eventually get to share wine out of bottle and you get uh, pretty instantaneous feedback and results and pleasure. And um, yeah, I, I've enjoyed it. Well, I really see from that, I was going to ask you a little bit more about how engineering might underpin it, but I think you described it so well, even back to, and, and, and I'm torn about feeling like whether Cambria is going to be really excited to hear that there's this bar that's overpouring their wine, <laughs> or the manager at that bar who's horrified at how, how, how much profit was going right out the door. But <laughs> fortunately for everybody, it converged on you becoming a winemaker. But I feel like it's the engineer being served that special glass of wine that made you pursue all these things that probably somebody else would have never thought to do. And, you know, that corresponded with your background. So I, 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 I love that story and that connection and that symbolic glass of Cambria I can just see in my mind's eye. I was curious now that you said you've, you've done these 14 years at a winery. Do you find that amongst other winemakers, there, there's a kind of common story that's unusual or or do you think your story is more unusual obviously i think from fred's background he grew up with winemakers already 
But what do you think in terms of particularly the younger winemakers you meet in the valley? I, it's a whole spectrum of, of people. I've seen uh, art majors, uh, French literature majors, uh, you know, obviously lots of them that went to school for this. But uh, often you, you see um, winemakers come from all sorts of backgrounds. Uh, I haven't met too many that have come from high tech, um, you know, but there's still a few. I, I know, uh, like Karen Steinwalk, uh, if, I think Brian Loring, um, that are local winemakers here also came from, uh, you know, Greg Jaffers, I think also came from technology based. So there's a few people who have transitioned from one area to another, maybe not as early as I did. Uh, and, uh, you know, I only did engineering for about four years. And so I'm kind of happy for that. I feel like, yes, there was a little bit of lost time in that time period, but uh, I benefited from all those experiences and was able to switch over to to wine at age 30. And uh, I feel like that still had a pretty good amount of time left for me at this point to continue doing this for as long as I can. And do you recommend to people who express interest in getting into the field that they kind of do what you do and really learn on the job an apprentice? Or do you think going to school to learn about wine making, such as at the Oneology program at UC Davis, is that better? Or they're both just viable paths that suit people differently? I think they're both great paths. I mean, there's there's some people like I said that major all over the all over the spectrum on different careers or different majors, and then they have learned on the job like I have. Um, I did read some books and stuff like that when I was trying to make wine at home, uh, but there was no formal schooling for it. Uh, and then UC Davis obviously offers the extension program that I know a few people have gone through and I know one person that's about to go through it uh that was a a guy we had working last harvest that just came in last week to tell me that he signed up and he's gonna try to do this so it's always exciting to hear people switch what they're doing into the field that we're in but um I think they're both really viable paths uh at the end of the day working in a winery day to day, seeing what ha- what works, what hasn't worked, um, is probably the best way. Uh, hence why even, you know, uh, careers like doctors and things like that always, there's an internship uh, and residency periods and learning on the job, I think, in any field is is great. Yeah, no, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is you can do without the formal schooling. It might be a slightly longer process. You can maybe use the formal schooling to jumpstart your knowledge or accelerate it. But then at the end of the day, you're still going to have to take that knowledge and learn on the job to become a um, viable or successful winemaker. Right. I I was also, I got to admit, I was also very fortunate uh, timing and availability and, and meeting Fred Brander, uh, you know, I is great um, to have an opportunity like this. I mean, Fred did not have an assistant at that point, 
And so he had a couple of guys that had been working in the vineyard to help him out in the cellar. And so I was able to shadow him and really just take advantage of that and learn on the daily and what to do uh, to different wines in different situations. Um, I also got to add, even though Fred Brander did go to Davis and studied um, enology there with a lot of the Napa Valley producers and had formal training, he has really done winemaking or poached winemaking with uh, much like a uh, chef would, you know, a lot of on the fly adjustments, uh, not necessarily totally basing it on numbers, but more on taste. Um, not, you know, using a lot of additions or none, but doing a lot of different blends or blending different lots to help balance the wine back out. And so I came in thinking, there was going to be this cheat sheet and formula to adjust and and tweak things because that's my former engineer brain. Uh, mm. You know, plug a number, create a calculator, and and have it spit out a number of how much you know to add or change. And Fred was no, you know, let's let's add a little bit and uh, be careful with it, and then retaste and. Uh, and then make another adjustment and go along the way. And so that was a pretty neat experience for me because it broke me from uh, making, potentially making wine by numbers, but more on feel and taste and, and experience from learning from previous years. Yeah, I know. It strikes me that, that I think people often forget with this sort of elitism that goes with wine, that it's very connected to farming and especially, correct me if I'm wrong, Brander's an estate vineyard, meaning they grow their own grapes or the majority of their wines are made from grapes they grow. So Fred Brander, if you will, is a farmer and a winemaker. Is that right? Correct. Uh, his father had done most of the vineyard work to the majority of the property uh, Fred still took care of about one quarter of the vineyard himself directly and did all the winemaking. But you are right. We, we are an estate winery vineyard. We do still buy some grapes from outside vineyards. Uh, the estate vineyard takes up about, let's say, 70% of the grapes we use. And then we have to buy about 30% to meet are the demand and the volume you need to produce. But yes, you're right in that it's easy to forget that uh, wine is an agricultural product, that grapes do get dusty, that anybody working in the vineyard will get also very muddy and dusty and, and, and potentially wet. It is hard work. Uh, you know, wine isn't something that is created in a, in a lab or a sterile environment. It is an organic product. Uh, so, you know, there's no washing of grapes. Obviously they're not, they're not dirty and dusty horribly. Uh, but, uh, the, you know, there's, it's not a sterile thing. It's a, just like you would pick, be picking lettuce or carrots, you know, they, the um, they're in a, they're in a farm. Well, and I think I was getting at that with growing your own grapes. It's that same thing. Like 
science now really helps inform farming, but there's still a sort of understanding the land and the vagaries of the weather that, like you were saying, it's not an exact formula because you're dealing with Mother Nature and you're dealing with unknowns. And right, you, I think winemaking and farming have all been refined by the science and the developments in science, but at the same time, it's very hard to do it well without the the art of experience of just doing it and understanding the elements that you you can't control and you just have to wait and see. I think is that what you were kind of alluding at when you were talking about what Fred was teaching you at the beginning? Yes, yeah. Thank you for for clarifying this. Uh, for sure, that's uh, the the technology and tools and and modern methods to help care for a vineyard all help but you're right it there's lots of unpredictable parameters like any type of farming that you have to make adjustments and in in change uh you know you don't always know exactly what your yields are going to be um you don't know exactly what the year is going to be as far as heat or rain and so the beauty in in a sense that's a very Challenge, a very great challenge with all farming in wine uh, that can be a benefit all around in that every vintage will have its own signature due to weather and and yields and uh, all these unpredictable elements to farming so every year might be if it's a warmer year, it'll be, you know, usually uh, richer wines, bigger wines, slightly, potentially slightly higher alcohols. In cooler years, depending on varietal, different characters of the varietal will show. Uh, you know, uh, Syrah might be a little more on the white pepper or Cabernet may have a little more of a green note to it. Um, so is Sauvignon Blanc. It might have a little more uh, acidity and potentially a little more uh, green flavor profile. So you're right. There's, there's uh, farming can be challenging, but it also can be a, a, a great thing to differentiate vintage to vintage and have variety in, in what we do, and keeps it exciting too. Yeah. No, I think that's a great connection of turning the. Um the frustrations of mother nature are what makes winemaking exciting because you aren't going it, to, it's very du difficult to duplicate the same exact product, but that you can then have distinction. So we're going to talk about that more. We'll get into talking about the wine at Brander right after we take this break. Stay with us. Did you know that you can stream The French Chef with Julia Child on the PBS Documentaries Prime Video channel? Start your free trial today and see where America's obsession with cooking shows began with one spirited woman who made French cuisine a spectator sport and forever changed the way we cook, eat, and think about food. In addition to The French Chef, the PBS Documentaries Prime Video channel features a vast library of high-quality, thought-provoking, factual programs for curious viewers. All from America's trusted home for documentaries, PBS. 
Welcome back. We're talking to winemaker Fabian Bravo from Santa Barbara's The Brandard Vineyards. So we've been talking a lot about your career and how you got into winemaking and and the vagaries and, and magic of uh, growing grapes and making wine against the forces of Mother Nature. I, let's talk about the wine a little bit more. Tell us more about what is, you know, you think distinguishes or unique or um, is distinct about the, the wine that you guys make at, at the Brander Vineyards? Well, like you mentioned earlier, our, our focus is Sauvignon Blanc. Um, Brander's produced 45 years of Sauvignon Blanc, so it's been a little while. There's uh, lots of experience in Fred, and, and I'm building on that after being here for 15 years. Uh, so the focus is on that. We make different bottlings of that, but we also work with other white wine varietals. Uh, we we also grow a little bit of Riesling, Pinot Blanc, Pinot Gris, Semillon, a uh, little bit of Muscat, and uh, even varieties that are not often heard of, like Petit Mansang and Sauvignon Gris. We grow all those white wine varietals here at Brander. Uh, so there's... We have a lot of experience working with white wine grapes. We we uh, have a small cellar, a small press, so we tend to start our harvest with Sauvignon Blanc a little bit on the early side of of uh, ripening, and uh, we crush Sauvignon Blanc for about three weeks. Uh, some of the stuff we pick at the end might be a little on the richer and riper side. And so we, we tend to get a good average uh, at the end. Uh, and the nice thing about it, like I said, we have different bottlings of it. We can, we can do a lot of single vineyard stuff from the vineyards that we source from. And we can separate lots of different components or, or uh, um, lots that we pick in the vineyard into separate little tanks or vessels and some in barrel too. But uh, keeping all these components makes it really easy for blending later. Um, so we do maybe 200 plus tons of Sauvignon Blanc. Um, we have one wine that makes up about two thirds of our production. That's the Los Olivos District Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, very consistent, like I said, we've, since we pick it over a three-week span. And then we have all these little lots, uh, so that's about 10,000 cases. We have all these little lots we can separate and uh, be sort of premium bottlings of Sal Blanc, uh, a stainless steel version for the estate, an oak version for the estate. And the majority of all the other lots are, are stainless steel fermented in age. And what that ends up being is that uh, it keeps the bright the wines really bright and fresh uh, most of them have little to no oak influence so it truly shows varietal character shows what the grape can deliver uh, and uh, we we try to keep it exciting every year keeping wines really bright and fresh uh, refreshing for Sauvignon Blanc that's key um, it's a very popular varietal to to drink and, and enjoy in the summer and the warmer parts of the year. And how would you compare the kind of, is there a distinct flavor profile that you think these grapes and, and the way uh, Brander uh, produces their Sauvignon Blanc that like, how would you compare it to maybe, I don't know, a lot of people drink, you know, 
Marlboro, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. How 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 does it compare? Is it similar, or or what different do you think differentiates it? Well, we we do different bottlings to try to showcase different uh, sides of Sauvignon Blanc. We we uh, we San Ynez Valley is a little bit on the warmer side, so our wines are probably not as green and uh, and sort of uh, bell peppery, or you know, some people might describe as jalapeno-ish, as most of the New Zealand Sal Blancs are. We we have uh, sort of a profile typically lines up more on the tropical side. Uh, but every bottling is a little different. So we do make one that's probably leaning a little bit on the green side, not as much as the New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs. That's from a vineyard called Mesa Verde Vineyard. And coincidentally, the, there's in Spanish, there's a the word green in there, and that mm-hmm. name of that vineyard, Mesa Verde, and, it, and it's the greenest of the Sauvignon Blancs we make. But we tend to make Sauvignon Blanc... Uh, a slightly different Sauvignon Blanc from every place. And that's the the idea to be able to offer multiple Sauvignon Blancs, have people come taste the different styles of Sauvignon Blanc that are uh, potentially available and have them pick up at least one of their favorites uh, and in, or multiple bottlings as their favorite. Uh, but uh, for the most part, our wines tend to be a little more tropical, showcasing uh, sort of passion fruit or guava, uh, still very citrusy grapefruit, but even some pineapple tones in some of our lots. Uh, we, and then we have one, of course, that we ferment in Asian barrel that's a little rounder, um, still refreshing with a lot of acidity, but the oak profile just rounds it up a little bit. Uh, it makes it a little more wholesome, I guess. I always describe it to uh, uh, Sauvignon Blanc that, uh, you know, for those who typically don't drink Sauvignon Blanc or drink more red wine, we typically can offer that wine called Cuvée Nicholas for them. And it's it's a wine that typically uh, opens their eyes and they really enjoy it. Or, or more like a wintertime, falltime Sauvignon Blanc where the temperature's not as warm. It's just a little more fulfilling in those, that time of the year. So we try to do a little bit of all the Sauvignon Blancs. That's the beauty part of Sauvignon Blanc, that it, there's so many different aspects to it. Uh, and you can do so many different decisions along the way. You can, uh, you can do it in stainless. You can do it in barrel. You can pick it early and showcase green profiles or you can pick it later and show more tropical tones um you can inhibit malolactic fermentation or let it go through malolactic fermentation which means uh if you inhibit it you might see a little more of that green apple acidity or or profile in a wine um so there's there's a lot you can do with Sauvignon, which is pretty exciting yeah so it sounds like you're you're doing all these different flavor profiles through what and I mean this in a good way, the manipulation of the fermentation process, they're all coming from the same grapes or or there is some variation because of you're picking grapes in, in different 
And when you pick them, changes what you then do with them. We we try to keep most of the seller uh, or manipulation to a minimum, but there's still some of that. So we try to keep we try to use the same yeast. We do experiment with different type of yeast strains. But for the most part, we really enjoy one particular yeast. It's kind of our house yeast uh, to kind of reduce variables for the different vineyards. We try to showcase every vineyard on its own. So Mesa Verde will showcase uh, that profile that they typically have, maybe a little more influenced by uh, the location. They're right, they're really close to the river. Uh, they, the fog uh, is there longer than it is here at the Brander property. So it rolls out later in the day and it rolls in early in the evening. Uh, so the warm part of it, the warm hours of the day are but shorter than they are at Brander, even though they're only four miles away. Mm. So that vineyard tends to be a little greener in profile. Uh, and then, um, but we, we also work with lots of different, lots of Sauvignon. So we have about 50 different tanks of stainless steel in the winery. Each press load is used and filled a separate tank. So we try to keep all, uh, every single tank, just a different Sauvignon Blanc day, a different pick day, slightly, you know, obviously picked earlier means less alcohol, uh, more acidity, you pick it later, usually means a little richer wine, uh, slightly like uh, higher alcohol. And so it's nice to see the progression in the cellar as we pick things through. Uh, we probably pick about 20 times here at Brander for Sauvignon Blanc. At Mesa Verde, we pick about eight, seven, eight times, try to keep all these lots separate. Uh, we have another vineyard that we work with, La Presa Vineyard. And so by doing that, we have sort of a spectrum of Sal Blanc. Fun time to taste at Brander is in January in the cellar because we can go through the whole sequence, the progression of the vintage with the very first pick to the very last pick. And so at the end, Fred Brander and I go through the lots. We pick our favorites. Uh, so even though we picked eight lots for Mesa Verde, we might pick one or a combination of to make the Mesa Verde Vineyard bottling. Same with the Brander Vineyard on Atural Estate Bottling of Sau Blanc. That's what it's called, on Atural. We pick our favorite pieces and components, one for aromatics, one for uh, maybe acidity, uh, richness, different reasons why we like different wines. We then decide which pieces to put together to make sort of that Sauvignon Blanc blend. And uh, so we we don't necessarily manipulate each piece. We tend to be selective on what we want to bottle, I guess, and having the available choices to do so because we've set up the cellar that way where we can keep pressing and keep everything, every piece separate and just kind of follow it along during harvest and, uh, and then select our, the pieces that we really enjoy uh, to make the final blend or bottling for each wine. Got it. Well, you've given us a really good overview of, of how you make and, and, and what the wine at the Brander Vineyards are. Could we expand? I'm just curious, um, you know, I mentioned the 2022 Taste of Santa Barbara Wines the event that we did where we brought all these winemakers together. And, 
you know, I think one of the things that's really unique and special about Santa Barbara is the community itself and how supportive different winemakers and vineyards are of each other. And I was just curious, given your tenure in the Valley now, what are the things that you most appreciate about the the wine that's produced in the winemaking community across these seven now AVAs in Santa Barbara County? I, I really love our community. It's It's you know, there's a lot of great aspects to this area. Obviously, great grapes, uh, some good restaurants, uh, great restaurants. and uh, But the community is a big part of it. Uh, the wine community from from winery owners to winemakers to uh, the hospitality side of thing. We're all really close. Uh, my wife works at another winery. Uh, uh Several of my neighbors in our street work at different wineries. But uh, even within ownerships and, and winemakers, we're pretty close friends. Uh, we, I see several of them often. Uh, I enjoy the events we do together. It's always a great time to catch up and see each other for, for those winemakers or people we don't see as often. But uh, it's really nice. Uh, having wineries even near us because often equipment breaks or with logistics of of uh of bottling or, or product not showing up in time at our cellar we we tend to borrow and help each other out quite a bit uh even from using machinery like forklifts and tractors to hey can i borrow uh you know uh Bent tonight for fining, or can I ha- borrow some yeast today? Or, you know, it's almost like borrowing a cup of sugar with our neighbors here. But uh, it really is really close community. I remember working with uh, vineyards or or even varieties of wines that I haven't worked with, and you know, I I'll call two or three winery winemakers that have worked with that variety or that vineyard and get their take and feedback. They'll disclose what type of yeast it's they've been successful with, what doesn't work. You know, do you have to pick this vineyard on the early side? Did you pick that vineyard on the later side to uh, uh, help? All that information helps. You get one shot per year, typically. So it's it's nice to have a community that's really supportive, help, helps each other out, and uh, always, you know, uh, involved in so many different charitable events too. Uh, it seems like in the summertime, we, we, there's an event like every couple of weeks that we get involved with. And I talked about at the top of the show, the difference with sort of Napa and Sonoma in terms of maybe prestige or just top of mind awareness. But if, if, if it was asked to you, which I'm going to do right now, is mm-hmm. do you have, do you think there's a way of, of of characterizing or how do you answer the question of like, how are Santa Barbara wines different than what you might get from, from Napa and Sonoma? And I know that's a really complex question, but do you have kind of a first, you know, top of mind reaction to that? Or like, do you feel like you can blind taste test a Santa Barbara wine and tell the difference? Or how, what's your take on that, that question? Uh, taste the Santa Barbara wine and see the difference. I guess it largely depends on on the varietal. But one of the the cooler, the nicest part about Santa Barbara wine country is the ability to grow such a wide for, uh, variety of grapes. Uh, 
is what's probably one of the most exciting parts and unique parts of Santa Barbara, that we not only grow Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, which does really well on the western end of Santa Barbara wine growing region, but also as you go along, you 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 run into Syrah and Mouvedre and, and Cabernet and Sauvignon Blanc and all these other varieties that we tend not to see as often on the shelf that uh, Napa Valley alone wouldn't be able to grow the spectrum of grapes or even Sonoma County might not be able to do that either. But it's nice to see a lot of Spanish varietals, a lot of Italian varietals uh, being grown in this area. And uh, I think that's probably one of the most unique and special parts of Santa Barbara wine green, growing region that uh, we have uh, the availability to grow such a large array of grape varietals and do it successfully. Which, right, is a combination of the warmer weather and the the unique kind of geographic orientation of the valley to the coast that gives you like this, you were mentioning about the fog coming in and out, and that gives you like more control than if you were just in a really hot climate because heat alone, you need that variation, right? Because if you just had heat all the time, you, it wouldn't be as successful. Correct. Yeah, it's a little bit of the topography uh, and uh, soil composition. Obviously, the soil on the Santa Rita Hills is it's much different than it is here at, at Brander, and even the stuff in Happy Canyon on the eastern end is much different soil composition that we see at Brander. But uh, weather is probably one of the biggest factors in that the um, weather changes gradually and gets warmer as you go east. So even with the same varietal, let's for example, Syrah, where it's kind of grown in all in all the areas, Syrah from the Santa Rita Hills might be uh, leaner, uh, more the white pepper tone. It uh, it probably ends up pick, getting picked much, much later than a lot of things. And uh, as you go east, things tend to get a lot more fruitier and richer. Um, so even working with one varietal alone, you can get completely different results. But then along comes the idea that there's other varietals that don't do so well in different climates. So finding that a, a, geography and the right temperature in the right place to grow those things uh, and then making wine successfully is pretty cool. Like it, just seeing different bottlings and of different varieties is, is a pretty cool thing to see from all of our neighbors. Well, I wanted to ask you about your own label, Casita de Bravo. And I, I assume Fred Brander keeps you pretty busy with all that you have to do the Brander Vineyard. So why start your own label? And, and I'm presuming it's because you wanted to make slightly different kinds of wine. So how, how do your wines differ from what, what you do at Brander? Well, I, I started making my own wine here in 2012. And uh, I did want to make wines a little different. I think uh, for most people, it's exciting to make your own wine and your own uh, line um you don't always realize how difficult it is to then 
sell the wine after you make it. So <laughs> that uh, it's a part we don't often think about. But uh, when I asked Fred Brander early on if I could make my own wine, he said, sure, uh, that, that's fine. The only caveat is we don't, you don't make any varietals that we make for Brander. And, uh, and I thought, wow, that's going to be challenging because I've been working with these grapes and these varietals uh, for a while. I feel very comfortable with them. You know, I might be able to exaggerate a certain profile to some of them, you know, maybe work with different yeast or pick earlier than Brander and make a slightly different wine. But uh, today I look back and I think that's a great idea. It kind of helped me grow as a winemaker, stretch me a little bit and work with varietals I had not worked with before. And related to the earlier question you had about the wine community being helpful, I uh, decided that I'd make Sangiovese that year in 2012. And I reached out to Steve Clifton of Palmina and I asked him if he can spare some extra grapes that he was using for his label. And he uh, was able to sell me some. Then I, uh, you know, really grilled him and Doug Marjoram and, uh, and a few other people about how they make their Sangiovese and what's work. And they were all really helpful. Uh, gave me lots of feedback. Uh, went to rack, how long, how long they've been aging their wines for in barrel, what works. Um, you know, and even was able to borrow or buy barrels from a different winery. So very supportive in that way to make my own label, the whole wine community. So they're, my wines, Casita the Bravo label, they're different from Brandon's that they are different grape varietals. So my wife and I uh, own that little label, and we've primarily been working with Sangiovese and Pinot Gris. Uh, that was fortunate because we love Italian varietals. We've been to Italy a few times ourselves. Um, and uh, this year we expanded it to make a rosé and a Chenin Blanc. So we only have four SKUs, total maybe 300 cases. Uh, and uh, we're hoping that as we sell more wine, we, that allows us to make more wine. Um, we recently changed the label name. It was called Bravo Wine Company up until now. And so that's a recent change, Casita de Bravo. And uh, we're sort of in a limbo state at this point and that we're waiting for uh, the state ABC office to uh, give us our license to start selling the wine. So hopefully in the next month, uh, we'll be fully... Uh, capable of being able to sell our wine again. We were selling it Ill, uh, legitimately with Bravo Wine Company, but as we switched over to the new name, we decided to switch a lot of the, the structure of our license at the same time, which then required us to have sort of a gap in the middle as things were approved. Got it. So we'll, uh, you'll keep us updated when Casita de Bravo's wines are, are next available. We're going to take a break and we'll hear Fabian's Julia moment. Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really 
you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. All right, Fabian, what's your Julia moment? Well, it's... It's uh, it was around 2003, late 2003. I, uh, my then living girlfriend wasn't feeling well, and uh, we decided finally to go to a uh, um, urgent care clinic or something like that. So we attempted to do that, and of course. Uh, urgent care was closed, so we hung out for a little longer and then decided that, you know, what we needed then now take you to the hospital. So I, uh, we raced over to the hospital. I left her there. I dropped her off at the door and then while I went to go find parking. And I came, after I parked, I came back into the waiting room. And even though my then girlfriend was obviously not feeling well, uh, had a smile on her face and mentioned that Julia Child had just been sitting there next to her and uh, chit-chatted for a second. She was a huge fan. And I thought, like, wow, even in this not-so-great place or not-very-great place of a hospital waiting room, uh, Julia Child was able to put a smile on somebody I really cared about. And, uh, and I thought that was, that's pretty cool. That's, uh, that's a gift to be able to make somebody feel better and happier in a situation that's, uh, not a great situation to be in. Uh, we, I never met Julia Child directly. I know Fred Brander, who I work with, and lots of my friends uh, had spent time with her. But that was the closest I got. It wasn't a direct uh, meeting with her. Uh, but I, that was pretty impactful for me because I thought I walked out of there thinking like, wow, it's, it's amazing that people have that capability to still put smiles on people's faces we're not feeling well and uh, in a setting that's we try to avoid. Um, but that was the, the memory that still that I still remember very clearly and and uh, probably the most uh, impactful, as you would say. Well, that's really that's really unique. We've not heard a, a medically related Julia moment, I think. And and I think. Um, at that time in her life, 2003 was, was very close to when she died. And in the last couple of years of her life, she was having a lot of physical issues and was either in pain or quite uncomfortable. Um, you know, part of which is what happens when someone is just a very tall person as they age, it creates all kinds of uh, complications. So that that's wonderful to hear that even probably Julia was there for unpleasant reasons. She was still Correct. able to... Uh, uh, 
be Julia and, and, and have an impact, a positive impact on both your then girlfriend and yourself. So thank you very much for sharing that. And, and thanks for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, you guys have a great day and uh, wish you guys well. And thanks everyone for listening. That's a wrap for our 14th season. To learn more, check out at Brander underscore Vineyard on Instagram and Facebook. And it's at Casita de Bravo Wines and at Fabian Bravo Wines on Instagram if you want to learn more about Fabian's own work as a winemaker. For all the latest from the foundation, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next season on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.